You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And today we're actually going to do an episode that was inspired by a patient I met with this week. And we're going to talk about what happens behind the scenes um, at the time of an egg retrieval. But before we start with all that, what have you guys been up to this week? I'm preparing to kill plants. And (laughs) I mean, that's not really what I'm preparing to do. I always have really high hopes and I have not killed everything that I've come in contact with, but I was so proud of myself because I went to Lowe's and I've got my four big pots that I replant every spring. And this time I got um, the, you know how they always have a discount, like a couple of racks at any of the plant stores. And so I'm like, okay, if I buy these, then if I can't kill them, number one, I'm going to blame it on the fact that I got them from the discount rack. And number two, I'm not going to feel as bad about it. But um, but I got them and they're really beautiful flowers. And so they're they're sitting out on my patio right now, waiting to get dirtified. So when do you, what, what's the growing season in Las Vegas? Like when do you start planting stuff? So I, if we hadn't had that cold snap, I probably would have started planting a couple of weeks ago. Really? Um, wow. I mean, it's, it's, I was hanging out yesterday in shorts and a t-shirt outside in the sun because it was just gorgeous and it was the perfect weather for that. So typically we try, we've got one growing season that's like late February, Mm -hmm. June, and then everything gets obliterated by the heat, except for the things that are really heat tolerant. Like I've got some gorgeous yellow bells in my backyard that are six feet tall. Oh, wow. My yellow bells that I planted last year got completely destroyed in our snowstorm. Now what exactly are yellow bells? We don't get the we don't have those in Tennessee. They're like a bush that can get really huge and they're the bright green bush and then it has these yellow flowers that huh. look like bells. They're beautiful, absolutely beautiful, huh. but they can get giant mungus. And, and all the bells cluster together, so it's really pretty. But Susan, I thought mine had all died when Vegas got that snow. We got snow last year, and then more importantly, we got a bigger snow two years ago. And and everything, I mean, they looked like horrible sticks, but they grew back, and they were bigger and prettier than ever. So, so the entire thing looks brown. Like, everything yeah. you can see is brown. So do I leave it alone? Just leave it alone. Maybe the roots are still alive, yeah. Maybe it'll grow up from the roots. Yeah. I mean, I, that year I had to cut mine down. So it looked like a tiny little, um, spiky troll head. Like, you know, the troll, the hair, <laughs> yes. that only instead of hair, they were just brown sticks, but it grew back and it's now I'll send you a picture later, but it's, I mean, they're huge. They're six feet now. And I didn't have to do anything. I lost some of my lantanas that year. Um, which I thought didn't die for anything, but my yellow bells came back with a vengeance and they're gorgeous. Okay. So you did, you did trim it back some though. I did trim it back. Okay. Like to a stub, like you do with lantanas. 
No, not to a stub. Like, I would say there was probably maybe a foot. I mean, there were plenty of little branches. It's just instead of the big spindly branches going everywhere, Mm -hmm. it was much more... A Charlie Brown Christmas tree? (laughs) A little bit better than that. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I would say make a a little stick brush ball that's maybe a foot uh, foot tall. Um, So rather than, you know four feet of branches you just have like a foot of branches down at the bottom so it's mm-hmm. like tame little thing i bet they'll come give them a chance to come back at least it's so sad texas at least my part of texas looks so everything is brown and yellow like all of anybody who has any type of palm plant they're all destroyed like i'm hoping the like core the trunk type of things are are have survived but it's everything is that's so sad. So Susan, do you guys normally grow? Could you grow like Carrie was talking about that, that in Las Vegas, they can grow lemons and peaches. Well, peaches, I know we can grow peaches around here, but lemons and like tropical fruit, oranges and grapefruits and all that stuff. A little bit south of where we are, those things do well. There are some Uh people who um, very much baby theirs here. Um, it, it's not quite the right temperature range, but like yeah. an hour south of us, those things do really well. So our our citrus here, like I'm really babying my little lemon tree to see if I can get anything out of it. It was more when I was growing up in Arizona, we had just in our backyard, we had a fig tree, a grapefruit, a lemon tree. Um, in the front yard, we had four or five different various hybrid trees where someone like it was kind of like somebody just ate their citrus for the week, saved the seeds and then dumped them a bunch of the seeds into various holes. Like we had one tree that grew both lemons and oranges out of it. How does that work? (laughs) I think you have to graft something in, but I don't actually know. Like I can, uh, somebody asked me if I could make a baby with blue eyes. And I'm like, I can no more do that than I can grow a compound orange tree. (laughs) Sounds like some crisper for plants, crisper yeah. procedure for plants or something. Yeah. So I was, I was just telling Carrie that I'm kind of working on this garden at our school and I'm working with an older gentleman who's very well-respected. He's a former teacher and he's retired now and he's a master gardener. And so we went over to his house and we literally took tomatoes from seeds and, and stuck them in the dirt and like he's got this whole system where it has a grow light for 12 hours that he keeps on and 12 hours off. And, you know, he's, he's doing all the watering, but he, he ordered these seeds from this rare seed catalog. So like mm-hmm. all these like unique varieties of tomatoes and they vegetables. Be heirloom and, tomatoes. Yeah, they are. They are, they are actually heirloom and, and Cherokee purples are my favorite heirloom tomatoes. So he ordered some of those too. So anyway, so it'll be interesting to see if, be the first time I've ever participated in a successful grove of tomatoes. Probably I, I get like three tomatoes a year when I when I try. So maybe with a master gardener, I can at least feel like I've somewhat participated in the growing of tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes actually purple. Yeah, they look really ugly. They're the ugliest looking things you've ever seen. The Amish around here um, grow them a lot. And when I first I got them at a farmer's market. And I wasn't going to buy them, but the lady goes, oh, these are the best heirloom tomatoes I've ever eaten. And you look at them and they look like bruised skin. They look purple on the top, like somebody's bruised, like got really bad bruised skin. And they are the best tomatoes. They're just just great heirloom tomatoes. They're just got all kinds of juice and delicious flavor. And so those are my favorites. Very cool. Nice. So we'll move you right along. Carrie's got our question of the day. So Carrie, if you'll proceed on with that. Okay. So let me find it again. Here we go. 
My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years unsuccessfully. No miscarriages, just no positive tests. His sperm's normal. My labs or hormones are all normal, except my AMH level, which is high at nine. Periods are irregular, 28 to 50 days, but I always get a positive LH. I was not diagnosed with PCOS, but have been started on letrozole. Curious if there's other ovulatory disorders that could be causing this since I don't have the hormonal changes typically seen with PCOS, but haven't been able to find any information on other types of ovulatory disorders. Okay. So Abby, what do you think? So, you know, I tell patients that PCOS is a condition where there's, there's a wide spectrum of people that have it. And we as physicians have tried to come up with a specific criteria and tried to fit patients in this box. And not everybody really fits in this box, in my opinion. And I was just telling a patient earlier earlier this week that, you know, my feeling is whether we say you have PCOS or not, if you're not having periods about every 30 days apart or every 34 days apart or less or somewhere 26 to 34 days, then bottom line is it tells me you're probably not ovulating consistently. And so whether you have PCOS or not, it's kind of a moot point. As long as you have a good egg number, which you do, your AMH is really good. Um, you know, I think somebody just needs to get you on some type of medicine, the same type of medicine we put people on that have PCOS to get you to make an egg more consistently at a time where you know you're fertile. Um, and, you know, it, it'll make it easier for you to figure out kind of when to have intercourse and, and when to get pregnant. What do you think, Susan? Well, I, I think that you have to also remember that the diagnosis of PCOS is more than an FSH and LH ratio. You know, that, that was kind of the way that it was diagnosed, um, quote back in the day. Uh, but you know, really you need to have two out of three criteria of having ovaries that appear polycystic on ultrasound, having irregular periods and, or having signs of hyperandrogenism or too much male type hormone, which can be both lab wise or things like increased hair growth, acne, those types of things. And just from what I hear, you know, I'm assuming the things that have been needed to be ruled out, like a thyroid disorder or prolactin disorder have been ruled out that, you know, you have your regular periods and with an AMH of seven, I, I imagine you prop uh, an AMH of nine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of eggs there. It, there's a lot of eggs there. So I'm, you may not have the classic string of pearl sign, but I'm imagining you probably have more than 12 follicles on each ovary, which, or on a ovary, which is part of the diagnostic criteria. So it, it is possible that even though your doctor may not have told you a label per se of that you have PCOS, that you may in fact have PCOS. And there's other, there are some other anovulatory disorders as well. They start to get into the realm of the obscure of, um, of not having a response to LH because your receptors are damaged or um, other screwball biochemical things that typically we don't really have a great way of diagnosing. Like you can you can suspect some of them, but as far as our routine diagnostic capabilities go, most people who come to see us are like, I want to be pregnant yesterday. And they are not really down for, all right, let's try this type of challenge test. And let's try this type of med and see if we get this type of response. Like really what we're doing is, is approaching it. How can we get you pregnant in the fastest way possible? And we're going to pick up whatever diagnostic um, pearls we can along the way if we give you X medicine and don't see a response, whatever, we're going to change our approach. But um, 
most of the time, we're not going to really dive into those deep anovulatory disorder diagnoses because they're expensive, it's time-consuming, and they may or may not change what we do to get you pregnant at all. And so, um, so it's kind of an unsatisfying answer from the academic perspective because all of us and really a good number of our patients want to know exactly why we're doing what we're doing and why they can't get pregnant because that is very internally satisfying of, oh, I have XYZ gene that just didn't go right. And so that's why I'm having difficulties. But the reality of getting to those diagnoses is often so prohibitive that it's just not worth the, the time and the effort. And when you're looking to get pregnant, it's ultimately not going to change most of what we do. So, so yeah. All right. Well, I think that those are some great answers. So now we're going to switch gears and go to our topic of the day. And as I mentioned earlier, this was in patient inspired. And I think this was a great idea for a topic. And so our topic is what happens behind the scenes in an egg retrieval. And so Susan, you want to start off and just kind of start out with what happens when you walk through the door on the day you're going to have your egg retrieval. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I would like to mention that things may vary from clinic to clinic and we'll probably chime in on some different differences. You know, today in the land of COVID-19, unfortunately, (laughs) when you first come to our lab, there's a sign that says, please call this number so that we can come and screen you for COVID-19. So once you make it through the front door um, (laughs) and you pass your COVID-19 questions, uh, generally, you're probably going to go into some sort of intake or waiting room. Um, where they may ask you for some form of initial identification. Obviously, we want to make sure that whoever's coming in is who we expect to come in. Um, there's there's lots of ID checking when it comes to um, your egg retrieval and embryo transfer. And um, so we generally will have some part of that process. And then they'll generally show you to your... Um, your room, your, uh, at, at our office, each person has a, a private kind of pre-op post-op room. How, how does that work for y- you guys, Carrie and Abby? So for us, we, um, before we get our new building, which will hopefully come up next year, um, we, we have people with a central changing area and then they each have their own little space um, with a bed. And, and so when our people are coming in, I always tell them like, okay, when you come in, you're going to get your own beautiful designer gown and matching hat and booties. And then from there, we get your IV started for the best cocktails you've ever had in your life. So just prepare to order now. If you want mimosas through the IV or Bloody Marys, whatever, we've got that all set up for you. So that's kind of how our, our clinic works. It's one central, it's a private changing area um, that people go in and out of. And then they've got their own dedicated space while they're waiting and after. So are there curtains between the beds in your in your location? In the current place. In the next place, there's going to be walls. And I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, so same here. We have little rooms that patients go into, and they're fairly small. They just fit in the necessary people and equipment, um, and patients change in there. And then once they change, our nurse usually comes in, and that's when she kind of goes through all the consents and explains to them kind of what they're going to expect when they go home and you know, just any kind of questions that they have and any kind of issues or any problems that that we may need to talk about before they go back for the egg retrieval. And then once that happens, then basically at that point, once our embryologists are ready, so we the nurse calls back, make sure that our lab is ready, um, they are then rolled back to 
the room for their procedure. So one thing I do want to mention is I would say at most places, before you get rolled back, you are going to see your doctor. So your reproductive endocrinologist, and you're going to meet with your anesthesiologist because that's probably a doctor you haven't met with before. And they're going to kind of go through all of your major health questions, make sure you don't have any heart problems, lung problems, any anything that would make them concerned about you having more problems than the average person during anesthesia. And so they're going to go through that and kind of explain the process of anesthesia during an egg retrieval. And just to clarify the term rolled back. So in surgical terms, that typically means you're on your bed and they roll you to the operating room. Um, in our clinic, we actually, it's right across the hallway. So people just walk right across because <laughs> they're part of the, the clinic. Um, but it, it does not mean that we like roll you up in a little ball and then play (laughs) somersaults. Yeah. You're not doing somersaults. It's, it's rolling back on the bed. Um, and that's what that means. So once you get into the operating room, um, or the retrieval room, procedure room, whatever your clinic happens to call it, which you may or may not remember, depending on when you get some of your medications. Uh huh. Cause our, um, what I always tell my patients is that anesthesiologists are the best bartenders you have ever encountered and that, um, they always win. And so <laughs> you will, you will be asleep and comfortable, but we'll transition you over to the bed that you're going to be on. And typically after you're asleep and comfy, you know, and you're fitted up with your oxygen mask that you're breathing. Um, I know for our clinic, we don't typically intubate people. It's just breathing on their own and they're using meds that are, um, they're closely monitored by the anesthesiologist or anesthetist and your oxygen levels are monitored throughout. But I know for us, most of our anesthesia is just sedation so that you are comfortable and you're asleep and you're happy. Um, and all of that makes you happy. And that also makes me happy because it also means you're not moving, which is key for what I need to do. And one thing I was going to say too, I think patients get a little nervous when they roll back to the room because everybody sort of has the impression if I get to the OR and I'm not asleep, are they going to start operating on me (laughs) before I'm asleep? Don't worry. We'll make sure you're sound asleep. And in fact, I always think it's so funny when the anesthesiologists are starting to put the medicine in and they'll be like, how are you feeling? And, you know, patients will be talking away. And then all of a sudden speech will literally sound like a record player that's going. And the people can sometimes mid sentence will just absolutely stop talking. Um, You'll be able to breathe on your own. So you won't have a tube down your throat to breathe. But like Carrie said, you'll be comfortable and um, not feel anything that's going on. And it's just amazing after we get done. Most of the time we wake patients up, they're like, well, wait a minute, have I had my egg retrieval done yet? And it's over in a flash for them. So one thing I do want to mention is that the anesthesia that we typically use during an egg retrieval is not the same type of anesthesia that you may have encountered previously if you've had surgeries like a laparoscopy or a hysteroscopy. Um, This is more like what somebody gets when they have like a colonoscopy when we need to check out somebody's colon to make sure they don't have any precursors to colon cancer or something like that. The anesthesia, not the colon prep, we will not make you poop your brains out prior to come seeing us. I just want to clarify that. Yes. Yes. But it's a, it's a pretty gentle anesthesia. Most people don't have, you know, even if you've had problems with nausea with anesthesia before the, the type of anesthesia we use, 
um, is, is different from those others. And so it's, um, it's easier to wake up from and it's easy, it doesn't have as many lasting side effects. The other thing to know is that as people are talking, going to sleep and then waking up, everybody worries about, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? What am I going to do in general? Nothing. Um, every so often we'll get somebody who is really, really funny because they'll, they'll come up with whatever is, is on their mind and that will come out. But that is very, very rare. Most of the time people just calmly go to sleep and calmly wake back up without revealing your life secrets. So don't worry about that. It just, it doesn't happen very often. So kind of going through the people in the room, and again, this may vary from center to center, but as a general rule, obviously your anesthesiologist is there watching you breathe and making sure your heart rate looks good during the procedure. Your doctor would be there. Um, And there's usually um, uh, somebody who hands the instruments over or the tubes over. um, So a scrub tech, and there's usually a circulator who, um, you know, if we need something or if there's some issue or if they need some, some, sometimes she'll hand the tubes over to our embryologist. And then the other person who's there is the embryologist. And if they're not physically in the room, and in our case in Nashville, they're physically in the room. If they're not physically there, they're usually standing on the other side of like a window or something so that we can very easily hand the little tubes that hopefully contain a lot of eggs over to them so that they can look at them. Um, What about you, Susan? Who's in your room? That's exactly who's in our room. We have an anesthesiologist. Obviously, I'm there. We have a circulator, a scrub tech, and our embryologist is right on the other side of the wall. So um, the circulator is the one who brings the tubes from the scrub tech to the embryologist. Um, Other people who might float in and out of the room, depending on the practice, um, if you've got trainees in the practice, like residents or medical students, sometimes they will be in the room. It is very unusual for any fertility practice to have those people doing any retrievals just because the specialized nature of what we do, and it, it doesn't really translate to skills that they need down the road. So um, so infertility docs, REIs are, are pretty particular about that. There's no trainee participation in those things. Unless you're at a fellowship program. Unless you are at a fellowship program, in which case those are docs who have dedicated their entire lives to doing it. They're just earlier in their career. Um, and they always have an attending physician over their shoulder watching them to make sure that everything is is being done appropriately. But um, But typically it's not, that is not something you ever have to worry about because they have, if anything, something to prove. And so they're going to go for every last egg and then some. <laughs> and to be clear, the person who does your egg retrieval will have an MD after their name. And if, you know, if somebody's doing your egg retrieval, you'll, you will be talked to ahead of time. You'll know who's going to be in the room. If there's, the only time we ever have anybody is occasionally we'll have a medical resident, for example, but that medical resident really just observes. And we always ask our patients ahead of time, to make sure they're okay with it. And if they're not, then the medical resident doesn't go in the room. Yeah. Um, and that's really it. I can't think of anybody else who would be, who would ever be in the, the room there. Um, so Carrie, start, start us off and tell us about the prep. What do you guys do for prep and how's the patient positioned and how does all that happen? So as you're asking that, I can, I can hear my dictation in my head of patient was brought into the room, uh, consent was obtained, anesthesia was induced without any complication. The prep, patient was prepped in dorsal lithotomy position. What's the dorsal lithotomy position? What's that? Dorsal lithotomy is pelvic exam position. Um, you know, we make sure that your legs are comfortable, that there's no extra pressure in weird places. We typically pad it. 
we then put, um, we clean off the, the vaginal area. And so for example, what we'll do is we'll clean out, clean off the outer component of it. And then we'll put a speculum in and clean off the inside of the vagina. Different practices do different things. Um, some use betadine, some just use saline. Um, some use a practice like for us, it's typically a, a combination of both. And after I do the betadine, I will flush with enough saline until everything turns clear. So I know all the betadine has removed. Um, I've been in other practices, like when I was in training where it was all saline and, and really either is reasonable as long as the betadine is out, it's fine. And, and that's something that is so, it's so second nature because at this point, I mean, if you put together the number of times that Abby, Susan, and I have prepped, (laughs) like we're in the thousands uh, easily. Um, And so we just prep that. And then we do what's called draping, which is putting the blue drapes, which are the signal to everybody, this is sterile, don't touch unless you are also sterile, which seems odd to talk about in a fertility practice because the goal is the goal is to avoid sterility in general, but (laughs) (laughs) different kind of sterile. (laughs) sterile. Um, We make sure that everybody's covered or the patient is totally covered in the blue drapes. And then we put in um, a sterile ultrasound or an ultrasound probe. It's got a sterile cover on it. And I always take a quick look around to, you know, spot my ovaries ahead of time and make sure there's nothing else that I need to approach. Do you guys do anything with your differently with your prepping and draping? Mm, We use saline. We don't use betadine. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest thing is, and probably coming up to where you are, um, once you put the ultrasound in and you're taking that look, see, how does everything look? We always ask people to go to the bathroom right beforehand. Some people do, and some people um, don't completely empty. I think it's nervous bladders, but sometimes we end up having to put in a little catheter to kind of finish draining the bladder just so that we make sure that the bladder doesn't get injured while we're accessing those ovaries. Mm-hmm. And it also moves the bladder because if the bladder is super full, it's harder to see the ovaries. Mm-hmm. So we just use um, basically, you know, sterile fluid to clean out the vagina, but also, and I'm sure you guys probably do this too ahead of time. Patients are, at least in our practice, are given oral antibiotics in preparation, and they also get IV antibiotics on the day of the egg retrieval because, you know, there is a small risk of infection because the vagina has germs and we're putting a needle literally through the wall of the vagina into the ovary. And so very, very rare for that to happen. But because of that risk, generally our patients get antibiotics to, to minimize the, the amount of bacterial flora and, and certainly in the preparation that helps as well. We do IV antibiotics at the time of surgery. We don't usually do it beforehand per se. If I have a patient who during the retrieval has an endometrioma, I'm more likely to prescribe some additional antibiotics afterwards. Endometrioma, Susan? So if um, you have a collection of endometriosis um, in your ovary, which is where we're doing the egg retrieval. um, So blood is a great... um, Culture. Culture medium, um, a a good place to grow bacteria. And so um, just because there's a little bit of an increased risk in those situations that I I tend to give a few extra days of antibiotics, but that's, that's pretty rare for me to even do that. So, so once we start the egg retrieval, you know, our, our, um, cat, our, our transducers draped. So it's sterile. Um, as you guys mentioned, we look at the, what's the transducer, Abby? Transducer is that probe that we put in your vagina every single time that you come in for monitoring because, 
you know, a lot of people before they see a fertility doctor assume that we do all, you know, female exams with ultrasound abdominally, and we don't. Most of the time, actually, it's done vaginally. And the reason we do that is because it's the best way to see the uterus and the ovaries. And so as you go through the monitoring process, probably you'll see your ovaries once or twice on ultrasound. And that's exactly what we see at the time of egg retrieval. There's, There's no difference in terms of what we see. And unfortunately, I always tell patients, it would make my life so much easier if we could actually see the egg itself, but unfortunately <laughs> we can't. <laughs> All we can see is the fluid-filled sac that contains the egg. And based on the size of that, we have some, at least some ballpark idea of maybe how many eggs it will get. Never really know for sure until it's all over with. But we all, I think, probably go in every single one of those fluid-filled sacs because you just never know. You never know how quickly the eggs are going to grow and how mature they're going to be. You may end up getting several eggs that you didn't know that you were going to get. And so um, that's kind of how the egg retrieval goes down. And anything you guys do differently, Carrie? I have a critically important question for both of you. Okay, critically important. What music do you listen to (laughs) in the operating room? I actually don't usually listen to music in the operating room. So I, I, I'm, I'm relatively intense until I get my first seven eggs. <laughs> I, it's kind of like baseball players, like wearing the same stinky socks or something. Like I am like super, super intense until I get seven eggs and my staff know this. And it's like, once I get my seven, cause I have, I just have a good feeling that I'm usually going to get a baby out of seven, at least one baby out of seven eggs. And once I get past seven, then we start having more conversations and I I become much more relaxed. (laughs) We usually, I usually listen to just the radio for retrievals. Now we have this Jim Brickman CD, which is very relaxing, but after you've heard it a million times, every time I start to hear it for the embryo transfer, I think, why did I not get, bring some other discs to listen to? But, um, but for the retrieval, it's just the radio. And, you know, I'm like, Susan, I mean, I, for the most part, once I get an egg or two, I feel like, okay, this, you know, everything's going to be fine. But, you know, if I go into a couple of different of those fluid filled sacks and I don't get an egg out when I think I'm going to, it does stress me a little bit. And so sometimes I'll even suck the fluid out, which is what we normally do in curette, where we kind of turn the needle to try and coax the egg out. But then a couple of times, if if I don't feel like I'm getting the eggs, I should, I'll put fluid back in and kind of blow the follicle up and try again. Um, Blow it up as a balloon, not as in blow it up like a bomb. That's correct. (laughs) Blow it back up, just inflate it like a balloon again so I can get another go at it. Um, And and sometimes I I tend to do that more when there's a really low egg number because I just really want to do everything I can to try and get the egg to come out. How about you, Carrie? Oh, go ahead, Susan. What were you going to say? Then I'll- I have a question I'm just dying to ask. So do you... Okay, so when we collect the fluid, so the fluid can look a little bit different in different people, okay? So it can vary from relatively clear to more yellowish to sometimes it's kind of bloody, okay? But do y'all watch for floaties? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I used to. I don't so much anymore because when they hand it off, I can't really, I mean, it's it's kind of, our room's, our room's pretty dark and it's it'd be really hard to sit and hold it up to the light and see if there's floaties there. So when we're talking about floaties, we're actually not talking about something disgusting in your soda. No, it's good. <laughs> eggs. Eggs and granulosa. We're, we're seeing eggs and granulosa. So even though we can't see things on ultrasound, um, when the fluid comes out, there's often little white particles that we can see floating in the in the fluid that was in the follicular fluid that we just collected. And so 
usually when we're seeing those little floaties, it's giving us re- reassurance that when that tube actually goes back to the embryologist, there, there's there's a good chance of being, having an egg. But that was, that's what I was going to say. More importantly, though, the person who gives the final call is the embryologist. So once that tube is handed off, very carefully handed off to the embryologist, the embryologist puts it in their little Petri dish, and then they look in the microscope to see if they can find the egg. And so, you know, sometimes we kind of are waiting with bated breath, waiting for what the embryologist has to say in terms of, of the eggs that they're seeing. So Carrie, how about you? So when we're doing it now, granted, we do, we do a fair amount of research because you, y'all know we're nerds um, and we embrace our nerdliness. And so one of the research projects that we've been working on for a couple of years here in various forms has been, we track every single follicle. And so what is typical is that for most centers, you go in and you collect the fluid. And like Abby said, you may or may not flush, which is putting that extra media or the fluid that we store the eggs in. Um, to keep them protected, you put that some extra of that fluid in and then suck it back out. So that way, just in case an egg is stuck to the wall or you didn't get it the first time, you've got a better shot at, at getting it. Well, with the research projects that we are doing, in order to really maintain separate eggs and clear the line in between each time, we end up flushing every egg and we use separate tubes. Whereas normally you would just put them all in one tube and pass off as each tube fills up and then just move on to the next tube, move on to the next follicle. Well, so we separate for all of those. So it's actually alleviated some of my need to be super intense because I know as a matter of course, I'm going to do at least three flushes on every single follicle. Mm. And oftentimes I'm doing more than that because I, what I have found, and I have zero data for this particular thing is that I feel like I need some wake up flushes in the ovary for the first time I go in each side, just to stir things up and let them know that they need, that they need to wake up and they need to come out. And so as a result, I'll do those flushes, send off the the tube. And then I oftentimes get a call back of, I know before I've ever left that egg, it, I, before I've left that follicle, if I've gotten an egg or not. And so that allows me to judge my intensity going forward of, can I sing? Or, <laughs> or am I in my little pattern of, you know, flush one, flush two. So I have a really important question as a flusher in the practice. So there's two of us that are flushers and there's three of us that are not flushers. So, and sometimes I kind of get criticized for flushing and I don't do it to the extreme, but I just feel like if there's four or five follicles, I need to give it everything I can to get the egg out. So tell me what you guys have figured out when you have a follicle, do you sometimes find that you, with all your best efforts, you don't get it out with the first one and that you have to flush again? I mean, how many times do you get it out in the second or third flush? Or do you know that? So I would like to first of all comment that when we're talking about flushing, so when when you have your egg retrieval done, there are two different types of needles that could be used. You could have a single lumen needle be used, or you can have a double lumen needle. Generally speaking, when somebody talks about flushing, they're using a double lumen needle. So, um, but apparently that is not what Abby does. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I've done that in the past many years ago, but no, we we, I just use the same single lumen needle. So if I have somebody who does not have a whole lot of eggs, I will use a double lumen so that I can flush more easily. And if I have somebody who has a lot of follicles, I'll use a single lumen needle. Now, if I'm flushing, it varies from... Per- so back to Abby's question, it varies from person to person. Now, I have a theory that people who are more anxious tend to require more flushes. 
Um, you the doctor or the patient? That's what I was going to say, doctor no. or the patient? <laughs> if the patient is exceptionally anxious, it seems That like, sounds like a research project, Susan. It does sound like a research project. So, Carrie, <laughs> since y'all do all this data, you need to you need to make some note of like some sort of anxiety scale <laughs> because it really seems like people who are more uptight tend to hold on to their eggs a little bit more. Um, and sometimes they come out really easy. And But people, I tend to think that people kind of end up being a certain number of flushes. Like if it takes three flushes to get an egg out, the next follicle is probably going to take about the same. It, there doesn't seem to be a lot of variability from follicle to follicle if, if you're actually flushing. So that's my non-scientific opinion right there. <laughs> That's really funny. And we could probably spend the next hour on confounding um, components of that theory and how you would tease each one out. Because uh, I'm pretty sure you'd have to control for the number of eggs and follicles seen and the age. Age and the diagnosis. And, and diagnosis and all those things. But um, but that's interesting. Okay, so so have you figured out how many flushes it takes to get the average egg out? Or do you get more eggs some, in some people with second and third flush or not? Usually by the time you hit three flushes, it's out. There, There is a subset of patients where I've found that I pick them up on four, five, and six. And and part of the way I know that is that there, when we first started doing this study, in order to make sure that we had no holdover from one uh, follicle to the next, we were doing like six, nine, 12 flushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is very rare that I pick up an egg after flush number six. So what you said about three flushes, that's usually what I tell patients with a low egg number. I usually say, I'm going to flush your follicles three times. And I found out over the years, if it doesn't come out in three, it's probably not going to come out. So that's that's kind of what I do. If it doesn't come out in three, then I move on. Yeah. So yeah, well, good to know. All right. Well, sorry, we digressed a little bit. <laughs> sorry for our listeners. Conditions, what are the conditions of your your operating rooms that are perhaps different than a standard OR or a standard clinic room? That's a great question. You go ahead. (laughs) Um, The room is generally dark because we have the ultrasound on. And and so there are some lights on in the room. And so it's not like pitch dark. We can all see what we're doing, but it does let us have good visualization. There, there's usually like a spotlight type thing that we use to kind of look while we're placing the speculum and make sure, making sure everything's there. Um, the rooms are generally not decorated in any way. So that's very different from a clinic room. Um, at our at our clinic, I, I want you to feel as homey as possible and it be very comfortable. Um, in an operating room, they, there generally is no um, decor per se. <laughs> Um, and so there's, there's a lot of equipment. We have a full anesthesia cart, which is kind of this big cream color box thing that is, has all these kind of bells and whistles that lets the anesthesiologist do their thing. I think those are kind of the, the big things that you would notice. We also have a positive pressure environment too. So you can almost feel the suction when you walk in and walk out because as Susan alluded to, embryos don't like light very much. They don't like particles floating in the air. And so kind of the idea is you want to want them in an environment that they thrive in. They also don't like you to wear perfume. So don't wear a perfume on the day of the egg retrieval. We all try not to wear perfume. They don't like odors. They don't like scent. And so um, we all do bathe. So even though there's no perfumes, <laughs> we all smell. <laughs> yes. We don't have any kind of odor, good or bad. We, we hope on the day of the egg retrieval. <laughs> so, um, 
So that's, I think that's different than other environments, some, some other ORs. And so once the eggs come out, so we've done the egg retrieval, what happens next, Carrie? So once the eggs come out, they get handed off. I mean, immediately once they come out and that tube is full, uh, full, they get handed off to the embryologist. The embryologist is typically working in an environment with a really specific oxygen tension, a ratio between oxygen, nitrogen, and CO2 because uh, eggs are really particular about that. And so your embryologist is going to identify the egg and set them aside. And what happens from there is a whole other episode. Um, (laughs) But once all of the eggs are out of the woman, we then take all of our instruments out. Um, You know, I usually clear off sometimes some people bleed, some people don't, you know, I always go in and check and make sure that there's no little bleeders that I need to either stitch or just pinch to, to close off. Um, I always do one final look with the ultrasound to make sure there's no internal bleeding. You know, there's always a, uh, usually I would say about a hundred cc's of fluid in there, whether it's serous fluid from the follicle being ruptured, or if it's just blood, that is normal and nothing to worry about. Um, and then once I've done that final check, I take all of my instruments out, I clean off anything that needs to be cleaned and take all the draping down and take the patient out of lithotomy or pelvic exam position. Once we have her out of position, then the anesthesiologist is typically waking her up at that point. So um, cutting off the the good cocktails (laughs) and they're washing her air supply, making sure that levels are all good. And then she starts to pick up. Usually uh, she starts to perk up within, I would say, 10, 15 minutes. Like it's it's really pretty pretty fast. And sometimes it's even faster than that. Mm -hmm. So then she rolls back to her room. um, And what happens when she gets to her room, Susan? So generally, um, you're going to have a nurse with you watching you kind of wake up until you're able to kind of have somewhat of a conversation. Usually around then, if if you have your partner there with you, um, they'll bring them back into the room to kind of keep you company. And then they're there to help you with any pain control. If you're having issues with pain control, um, generally they'll start you off with some ice chips to make sure you're tolerating that and then kind of progress you to usually to a little something to drink and maybe some crackers or something. And most people after uh, recovering for about an hour or so, they're going to be ready to go home. And one important bodily function that we try and make sure that you can do is go to the bathroom before you go home because every now and then there's a patient who just can't go to the bathroom. And sometimes that's just a a response that people have to pain um, and it just prevents them from going to the bathroom. And it's, it's really rare that a patient absolutely can't go, but sometimes we might have to coax your bladder a little bit, turn on a little water, you know, sometimes you may just be dehydrated and we have to have you drink more fluids. Um, But usually we like to make sure that you can urinate before you leave. Um, And then generally, as far as pain management, we were all talking about this earlier. Most of us, for the most part, provide or tell you essentially to take ibuprofen and Tylenol when you go home. Um, Occasionally, we'll give patients narcotics in certain situations. But for the most part, it's just things that you can buy over the counter in terms of pain relief. And then before you leave in our practice, and I'd be interested to see if it happens that way in your practice, but before you leave to go home, our embryologist will come in after they've done the final count. So they've looked through all of the tubes of fluid initially and have an initial count, and then they go back through all of it again, just to make sure that they didn't miss any embryos or I'm sorry, any eggs. And so they'll tell you how many eggs that you have before you go home. Is that how you guys do it, Susan? 
that that's what we do. Essentially, when I come back, I, I usually let the partner know that um, how many eggs they had at the time that I left the operating room, but that the embryologist will give them the final count before they leave. So I know you two are pretty close in location to where you you see your clinic patients and where you do their retrievals. I've got 45 minutes away. So usually oh, I, I know that. yeah. So I, I usually am doing retrievals and I have to drive 45 minutes to get back to my clinic. So I don't usually hang around too long unless there's been any complications, but I also have my partner who actually has a clinic right down the hall in case it, anything's needed. She she's available to come down if there were an emergency or anything. Yeah. We typically do the same, same thing as you, Abby, where we'll, uh, it's usually the doctor who lets them know, but um, but before they go, we let them know how many eggs were were there finally. And then the day after, they get an email of this is how many eggs we got confirmed, how many were mature, and then how many fertilized. So, and the patient goes home. We typically have them come back about four or five days later just to make sure that everything is resolving as it should. Um, but that's that's not as necessary and part of that we're doing just because we're control freaks and there's a lot of research component that we get out of it. So, um, so it's good. One other thing I want to mention, having gone through an egg retrieval myself is, you know, I was really surprised when I went through my own egg retrieval at how much discomfort I had um, the next day. And it really, uh, I said earlier, it felt like I did about a thousand sit-ups in one day. It just, it didn't really hurt, but it just felt really sore. And also one important point to know is that once the egg retrieval is done, I would say, you know, it takes you a couple of weeks for your ovaries to get big and full of eggs. And it's probably going to take you about a couple of weeks for your ovaries to kind of get back down to normal again. So there's sort of the immediate acute pain probably last you maybe 24 hours after the egg retrieval. And then it really dissipates. And really kind of the lasting discomfort that you have is really just from your ovaries still being enlarged. And, and again, it takes about two weeks for that to kind of go away. Um, so I, I think that's kind of it. Susan, anything, Carrie, anything you want to add about egg retrievals that we forgot to mention? I think those are all the big things. I think it's a pretty nice, relatively detailed overview of, of what to expect and a lot of what you're wondering about that you're not going to remember <laughs> because you're asleep. So it, it gives you a good idea of you know what, what you're going to be doing and what you have done um, during that time period. I would agree with that. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have in, about infertility. And all questions will be answered in the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. Um, the more embarrassing, the better. The more that we can tell you about, better. All right. We'll see you all soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, everybody.